Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. We in Outshine. Bitcoins, we got them. Acquire, never sell. But catch us rolling deep like a Dell. Bitcoin, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. Three guys faded talking Bitcoin, no fee. That's the free Bitcoin Podcast. Insane. And adoption is still the only thing. everybody welcome to the bitcoin podcast episode number 127 i am your first host as always big cello and i'm host number two big d where's host number three at Corey is incapacitated this weekend no that's not true that's a heavy word makes it sound like he's got some sort of medical thing going on no i think he's either like um he had family in town. He had to cater to the in-laws and all that stuff. Um, and it's Cinco de Drinko weekend. So family plus Cinco de Drinko equals Corey not being here this weekend. But it's all right. He, got, he was here for the interview. He got a Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. I had a margarita, but it was not like heavy or anything. It was like a one margarita on the rocks. That's when you know you're not doing it real. You get it on the rocks, and you get a small. Well, I went to I went to go get sushi, and I ordered a Dos Equis and got some looks. That yeah, because you're at a sushi restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> imported Mexican beer. Uh, like a bunch of bunch of angry Asians, or not angry, but they were just puzzled. They were like, "Well, what's funny is they are puzzled, yet they sell the shit." So I was like, why would <laughs> they have to expect that combination yeah, to happen at like, least once? It's not like they went to like a dusty crate and got me a Dos Equis. Like I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure people order it, but oh well. <laughs> well, oh well, this is we got- this is a this is a a good episode, man. Because I just want to tell you that uh, I think you know, ten fifteen episodes, I was getting pretty jaded with crypto and. I wasn't really too interested in it, but I think my love for it is coming back because not only is the price going up, but people's interests are going up and it's getting exciting again. Yeah, it it, it definitely has its waves now, waves that we didn't really experience because we were so new so long ago, you know, so everything was just awesome. But now that we've been in it long enough, we've seen some of the cycles repeat themselves like the one that right now where the price is going up and people are going bananas and you're getting new questions like, should I leave my private key code on the kitchen counter? And we're like, uh, no, that's probably a bad idea. But, you know, it's from being in so long, I think that's kind of why it kind of led to the little bit of jadedness. Um, plus, Bitcoin's so stagnant, man. It's I feel like we've been in this debate for the majority of the time. We've been into crypto. Am I right about that? It feels like I'm right about that. Well, I don't think it's an experiment. Corey's always like, yeah, Bitcoin's an experiment. Because if it's an experiment, then you don't know if it's going to succeed or not. And I know that it's going to succeed, so I don't view it as an experiment. I'm, I'm just I'm just glad I don't live in Japan. And uh, I'm just going to you know, keep moving forward. Wait. That's a pretty random thing to just throw out there. What do you mean? I'm just glad I don't live in Japan. And happy Saturday. 
Like, oh, what do you mean by that? Because everything in the United States is consistent. Did you know in Japan they're going on their third full day with no access to Coinbase? Like they don't – every day something's going down or something unexpected is happening. and we're, We live in the good old consistent United States. Yeah, consistent enough, I guess you could say. I mean, yeah, then they were the – they got goxed, right? They're the headquarters of goxing. That's where Mount Gox was essentially. So, yeah, Japan just, they want crypto so hard, but it's just seemed to be failing them a little bit sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But And then, uh, you know, we interviewed Charlie Lee, and then we got to see all the fruits of that labor from that conversation coming to fruition, you know, added to Coinbase. Uh, yeah, uh, man. We started out mining Litecoin. That's like what's so funny. Yeah. Like, what? How much did we pay for those video graphics cards? Like, wasn't it like seven hundred dollars a pop or something like no, that? No, it was. It was more. It was like twelve hundred a pop. I bought two of them. I bought I the other two. Life. <laughs> yeah. And and I the only way I could sell them on Craigslist after I told people I was mining them because they were smart enough to know that they were just they were working twenty four seven for seven months straight. Mm-hmm. Is they would bring uh they would bring a computer to my apartment, and I wouldn't let them in my house. So I'm like, you can plug it up in the garage, and I would literally have to install the video card into their computer, and then they would buy. And then I think I sold it for like seven hundred. Yeah, it wasn't that. It wasn't too bad. Um, now we definitely came out on top. I remember I I bought you out. That was pretty funny. You came out on top. I broke I, you. Yeah. Because I bought you out. You let me buy you out. I got rich on just on experience. <laughs> um, our rig was legit, though. But anyways, so we should talk about some Bitcoin stuff. Because this is the Bitcoin podcast, after all. And the interview this week with Jeremy Epstein or Epstein? It's Epstein. And he. Epstein. I'm kind of jealous because he wants to do – he's doing what we want to do, marketing consulting. Wow. Yeah. We do want to do that. I feel like we could do that. I don't feel like what's holding us back. Obviously, our lives are holding us back. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And but, see, he's 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 free from the constraints of corporate America. You know, he works from home. Mm-hmm. He can travel as he pleases. Um, but he's also, you know, he's got some years on us. So I'm, I'm sure he couldn't move this freely when he was our age. So we just got to keep putting in work. Let's talk about some Bitcoin stuff. Let's let's people do tune in to listen to Bitcoin. So, are you surprised at all about this price, the price action that we're seeing right now? Uh, yeah, isn't it? Aren't we at sixteen hundred now? We are. We were, oh, we're a little bit below it. Yeah, I'm I'm super uh super surprised. Um, yeah, I mean I'm not smart enough to buy in at like eleven hundred or whatever. I I just I keep. All the money we make from sponsors, and if it goes up, it goes up. But you know, I had this debate with you about whether the price going up was good for the community, and you kind of opened my eyes a little bit and said, "Hey, you know, anything that gets interest up is is good." So I'm I'm on board with that. Yeah, I think I think that. You're right. That it is kind of saddening to a point that the people, new people, only get into Bitcoin 
because its price is going up astronomically. So they're trying to get in before it's too late, right? And then within that sentiment, you're going to find layers, right? There's the people at the top that have enough capital to get in, you know, so they care the least. Then there's people in the middle. They're like, I could maybe buy like a third of a Bitcoin. And then there's people all the way. They're just like, there's no way. I can't even. There's no way. And none of those people know you could buy percentages except for the maybe the middle layer. But the the people like us that are like, wait a second. There's more to this than just a financial aspect. There's more to this than just a value. It's it's this technology that's fascinating and amazing. Not uh, there's only a small percentage of people like that within the people that I just talked about, and I think it's the people like that that you call the early adopters, right? So, so with that said, you know, is Bitcoin a threat to the economy? A Question threat to mark? The, like the the United States economy? Yeah. So let's no. assume Bitcoin adoption becomes the huge thing that we're hoping for. You know, investment is the engine of growth and the desire for a return is the reason people invest their hard-earned cash in the stocks and saving accounts and fund investment. Hold on. <laughs> My kids are super loud, right? They're raging very loud, and they're probably streaming on Netflix because you're going in and out. Okay, hold on. They're living take, it up. Let me take care of this. Hold on. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll do some elevator music. Cello's on mute and he's yelling at his kids and dude, dude. Okay. You back? Yeah, I had to yell at them. Alright, so <laughs> what I was saying was uh investment is the engine of growth and is the desire for a return. Uh, I mean, all of our friends on Facebook, we've been seeing that's the reason that people are investing their hard-earned cash in stocks, saving accounts. And fund investments. So then you enter Bitcoin. Why would I risk my cash in stocks when I can get better returns from simply buying Bitcoin and letting deflation raise the value? You know, the number of Bitcoin cannot increase as the digital currency economy grows. So we have deflation and a clear disincentive to invest and so a reduction in economic growth. So Bitcoin could essentially be a threat to the economy. I mean, if you take it that way, yes, it very well could be a threat to the economy but not at this stage at all, and definitely not the U.S. economy. Now, I know there's some little itty-bitty countries out there that, yeah, if Bitcoin came in, it'd be a real threat to how they run their government. But those are also the same countries where their government doesn't run very well either. So it's almost like Bitcoin is a saving grace. So I'm talking about you, Venezuela. I'm talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I realize for this to have any meaningful effect, Bitcoin would need to hover up a significant part of global investment, in which case I personally would be some sort of gazillionaire and possibly quite smug, but I'd rather not slow down the rate at which the global poor can be lifted from poverty. So expansion of the money supply is a normal feature of a currency. Deflation is undesirable in a currency. And I've yet to read a satisfying response to this issue. Wait, run that back by me again. Well, check the meaning of deflation. The small increase in total Bitcoin is swamped by the increase in demand. Uh, in demand, else there there wouldn't have been a price increase. You know what I mean? Deflation mm-hmm. is only indesirable in a currency if you want to enslave people. Does that make sense? The idea that inflation is a feature of a currency, I think it's propaganda. Inflation is desirable for those who have fixed payments, such as 
government debt, company payrolls, myself, I'm a homeowner with a mortgage, but this is only half the story. Renters, workers, savers, they all prefer a deflationary currency. You know what I mean? You know, a pizza was 10,000 bitcoins less than eight years ago, and today that same pizza is about 0.01 bitcoins. So those who have worked for bitcoin have benefited, and those who have saved bitcoin have also benefited. But was the economy stronger eight years ago, or is it stronger today? Mm, the economy, I don't know. I'm not an economist, but what I do know is gas is creeping up, being expensive again. So, I don't really no, know. You're, you're supposed to hear what I'm saying, and you're supposed to tell me that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. It's a currency, but it's got no intrinsic value. Is that correct? How does it have no intrinsic value? It has massive intrinsic value. Well, the network provides Bitcoin with its value, and if there are any holders, that means there's no transaction, which means no fees, which means no incentive for sustaining the network. Fungibility is everything for Bitcoin. What else could it possibly be categorized as but a currency, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm tracking you on that. But what does this have to do with, like, the economy? Well, you know, why is Bitcoin deflationary? Its its stock is not decreasing. It's not deflationary but... right now. It's inflationary right now. It's not, yeah. set, it's not due to be deflationary for some time, long time. At least, like, another 10 years. 20 years before it'll be deflationary but if it is deflationary then that means it's just the currency that actually gains value in accordance with how price increases go so our inflationary currency prices keep increasing right so that makes our currency deflationary. but and that would be like standard economics right because you you want you want a small amount of inflation because that kind of keeps the economy moving so you want that right yeah, I mean, inflation's a good thing when you have when you're trying to build capital, right? So that that massive wealth generation and giving people that upward kind of push, you kind of like inflation. You want a little bit of inflation. But that's that school of thought. Right? That's the school yeah. of thought that thinks that inflation is a great thing. The school of thought that thinks deflation is a great thing, they lost long time ago right so it's mm -hmm. a, we're only ever going to see if deflation's a great thing when or if bitcoin becomes massively adopted and it's been around for a long time right you're right it doesn't it doesn't stimulate a group of people to spend a lot like this weekend i really 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 wanted to buy this stereo and i could have bought it with bitcoin and it would have been no thing but what kept me from swiping my shift card and buying that stereo today was like, damn, this is a $300 stereo right now, but 10 years from now, this could be like a $30,000 stereo. So let me just not buy the stereo right now and just hold off. You know, so Ooh, that, that, that goes against the fundamental premise of economics. Cause that's what's the people... fundamental premise of economics. Free trade, man. People trade the things they, they have but don't want for things they do. But everybody ends up getting more of what they want. You know, if people, banks, corporations, societies, if they find an increased relative value in inflationary currency, then they can have them. You know, I want Bitcoin. You know, so you own Bitcoin. 
would you rather hold Bitcoin? Um, would you rather hold than whatever inflationary fiat currencies alternative? This ability to choose is central to a functioning economic system. Bitcoin gave you a choice and you chose. That's free trade. That's right. Damn straight Bitcoin gave me a choice. And I chose Bitcoin. Me too. the hell out of that USD, though. (laughs) 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 On a purchase like that, yeah. Well, sometimes it seems even less frivolous because sometimes I just like to feel good about spending Bitcoin. So I'll buy some, like, when I'm at Target... I'll buy some, like, popcorn or Bitcoin. You know the little popcorn that they make at Target? It's so delicious. I don't know how they make it. It's probably the most standard-ass popcorn on the planet. But I'll go over there. I'll swipe my car for a $1 popcorn. That could be a $1,000 popcorn one day. We should come up with a company called Standard-Ass Popcorn. And standard it, just cur- it curbs people's expectations. Because it's just a little bit above standard? <laughs> Standard ass popcorn. This popcorn isn't standard at all. It's fucking delicious. It doesn't even get the kernels in my molars. I'm no economist, but I think I think uh I think we hit it on the head on that one. I think so. I think so. Like some for some reason I feel like I'm a little bit high after that conversation we just had. Yeah. That was but uh we got so deep so quick. Like I was, I wanted to almost tap out and say, "Look, dude, I didn't even take that much economy in college. Like, chill." Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, um, what, would it, what would it mean if there was absolutely no trade, economic activity in our world? Would it be bad? Yeah. Would, uh, well, wouldn't that mean that everybody has exactly what they want? So, you know. <laughs> They can't no. improve their perceived satisfaction with their with every their lot time. Trading. Every time you have exactly what you want, you're always gonna find you want something more. That's just a fact. Like, and you're always gonna find Unless, you want something someone else has too. See, I feel like I want to tell Corey that while he was in Brazil, but he was like, "No, we're we're good with just this chair and this mug. We want not more." I wanted to call BS on that. You should call. But it might have been true. Um, Corey's kind of a minimalist, man. So he he probably, he likes expensive whiskey. But other than that, I think he's kind of a minimal, minimalist. And when I say expensive, I mean Corey expensive, which would be Jack Daniels, which I know that a <laughs> lot of people listening right now just rolled their eyes so hard they broke the damn, uh, what's that? little thing called in the back of the eye oh well they broke that thing (laughs) um i can't believe i just forgot what that was called wow anyways um yeah he's a minimalist he doesn't need stuff like we barbecued and he was like just grab that one slab of meat and we're gonna cook it and i was like but what about all of the flavors and he was like nope (laughs) just need that slab of meat and a little bit of salt and that's all you need and I was like, you are so un-American now. There's like a whole shopping section full of delicious flavors for all of the meats. And he was like, yeah, nope. I have I have a shelf in my pantry called Mount Rubsmore because <laughs> I have so many flavors I want to put on my meats. <laughs> Mount Rubsmore. 
I like that. Um, Salt salt is something that is very flavorful, but, like, it gets old, man. It's like, come on, salt, get it together. Yeah. Anyways, um, we've strayed a little bit. Um, You want to get into the interview, and then we can talk about the interview on the tail end? Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Intro. Intro him. Do your thing. Uh, yeah, so Jeremy Epstein is the CEO of Never Stop Marketing, which is, well, it provides blockchain marketing, blockchain consulting, and marketing consulting, which is pretty much everything me and D want to do with our lives. <laughs> and uh, he speaks at uh, a lot of international events, and um, yeah, I give him a pretty good buildup when we start the interview. So let's just jump into it. And um, if you like this interview, FYI, he was on like a month ago. So it's very short breaks in between this first and second interview. We just loved him so much, and he loved us, so we made it happen. Yeah, well, without further ado, here's Jeremy. Here it is. Corey, you ready? I'm born ready. All right, well, coming back to the show, it's it's only been a month, but we were eager to get get you back on, especially since... I missed the first go around. We have uh, Jeremy Epstein, who's CEO of Never Stop Marketing, and with 20 plus years of international marketing experience, it has led to speaking engagements in over 15 countries. He's worked at Microsoft. He's led marketing at Sprinkler. Basically, when he talks, you listen. I know I do. So thanks again for being on the show, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. So as as I was saying before we uh, before I got into the intro, I'm, I'm kind of a marketer myself, and for you as a marketer, you see blockchain-driven economics filling the void, and ad agencies no longer being a thing in the future. So, you know, how would a disruption like that be a good thing for the creative economy? I mean, you you'd pay the audience based on a price they set, but I think people like Ryan X Charles and platforms like yours and Steemit, they've tried, and depending on your viewpoint. I think they failed. So do you see this as, as kind of the future still? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of an old man, you know. I'm in my mid-40s now. So I've been through this cycle a couple times. And I think, you know, a lot of people have said it. I wish I could say I was the guy who came up with it, but I didn't, which is right now in sort of the evolution of Bitcoin, blockchain, decentralized systems, it feels like Internet 93, 94, and what you saw in those first couple iterations of technology companies then were like the, the beginnings of the evolution of where this thing was going, right? And, you know, most of those companies are no longer with us. But what they put in motion has led us to where we are today. And I was telling someone the other day, like, you know, the headline in the Wall Street Journal, a bunch of places, were the number of retail stores that closed, right? All these retailers are closing. Now, if anyone who's been really paying attention to this space, you know, for 10 or 20 years, like, that's no surprise. Like, we all could see that that was going to happen. Like, the value add of a traditional retail store, I worked at an e-commerce company in 1998. We were talking about this back then. The only thing we didn't know is when was it going to happen? So I look at it the same way as when you have intermediaries in the process, you add friction, you add cost, you add time, you add risk because of centralization, right? What blockchain and decentralized systems do is increase security, remove the risk, 
you know, remove the friction and lower costs. So any third party that's their simple job is to bring two things together. They're at the risk of disintermediation. I don't know when this is going to happen, but the idea that right now in a brand advertiser spends a dollar and by the time they get to the customer, all of the intermediaries have taken out money equivalent to 56 cents. So for every dollar you spend, you get 44 cents of value. So that's ripe for disruption. So that's what's happening in advertising. That's got to get you know driven to zero and you'll move it out. So whether you pay customers directly, you know, you as a creative could basically say, all right, I can, you know, build can emotional connections with customers and people will, you know, pay for that access and I'll be that channel. So I think there are a lot of uh, uh, new business models are, that are going to evolve. But when you when you're taking out 56 percent of every dollar, like, dude, there's there's not value. That's just people taking a little piece of the pie because they can. It's not efficient and it's going to got to go away. It's, again, it's going to take a while for this, but that's why I'm excited. If I were in my 20s now, I'd be super excited because like, I get to ride this way for the next 20 to 30 years. And then, So value gets created by owning the customer data as it stands right now. But since, I guess, marketers in the future, they're not going to be able to buy attention. How are they going to like need to engage in a meaningful way to warrant engagement moving forward? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, right now it's owning the customer data and obviously in a blockchain world, it's a shared data. So you won't own that. But I think what you, you can't own it, but what you can have is a value customer relationship, right? Like I don't own the data about you. I own how I behave in my relationship with you. And if I like, look, I'm very honored that you guys are having me back on the show. And this is a super microcosm, but think about it. We had a relationship, the first show, and what I did is I tried to deliver as much value to you that you're like, yep, you know what? This is some, this is a relationship I want to be engaged with. There are plenty of other people out there who can come talk about blockchain, right? Or marketing. Well, hopefully not. But in theory, there are other people out there, right? There's only one on the planet who can talk about blockchain and marketing, right? We'll just leave that for now until everyone else figures it out. But what I try to do in that relationship is like, okay, Corey, I'm going to try to deliver so much value. You're like, you know what? This is a relationship I want to continue to invest in. So just like, you know, Coinbase or blockchain uh, wallet or BitPay or Bitco, they don't own the data. They don't own me. But what they do is they own the user experience, the experience of the relationship by their interface, by ease of use, by, you know, all that stuff. And if you're like, wow, I prefer this wallet versus that wallet, that's basically owning the, the responsibility for delivering the customer experience. And I'll say, look, man, I have not figured this all out myself. Like, I'm really thinking about this a lot, but it's like we have to think about it differently then it's, oh, I have this huge data silo and I mine it and then I just send you all kinds of irrelevant permit, you know, spam or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess if I could build on top of that, it's like it's it's not about owning the data. It's about building the community where, where people go because the commodity right now is people's time. And since the way the Internet's built out, you can interact with whoever you want, whenever you want, on whatever you want. So the name of the game is to build communities that where people want to go, so that's where they're that's where they're choosing to spend their time. And if you have people's time and attention, then you you have essentially the resource that everyone's trying to get after. And so, what all of these people are trying to do is try to build platforms where everyone's going, which then is 
a high-priced commodity that they can sell or, or, or leverage in some way, shape, or form because it's no longer the data. Like Facebook does the same thing, but they have all the data. Right. Now there's a different way of doing it. actually a really good build. In, in about seven, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, um, I heard about this guy, uh, Nobel Prize winning, um, I think he's an economist uh, or something named uh, Herbert Simon. And I read about it on Fred Wilson's blog, which is like, if I was on a deserted island, island, it would be the only blog I could have. It would be Fred w Wilson's. But basically, he talked about the what, what Herbert Simon postulated is that with every abundance comes a new scarcity. And he said, basically, right now, it used to be that information you know, was the scarce item. But now information is in abundance because of the internet, right? And so essentially now to your point, Corey, you're put on like scarcity, the scarcity is attention. Like, think about it. Like think, I mean, one of the reasons I like to go on video in general is I want people to know that I'm actually paying attention to them because one of the most like disheartening things for me is when I'm on a video call with someone and you can tell they're like, checking email, multitasking, whatever. And it makes you feel like you're not important, right? But their attention's being split all over the place, right? But that's happening all the time. Like you've got 17 notifications popping up at any one time. There are 4,000 million different Netflix things you could watch and YouTube and whatever. You're like, ah, all over the time. So where you choose to spend your time is value. In fact, the book I'm reading right now is called The Attention Merchants. It's by this professor at Columbia named Tim Wu. I'm only like, 70 pages into it, but it's very promising. He talks about the history of harvesting, gathering, and monetizing attention. And that's exactly, to your point, Corey, what Facebook has done. And I think you're totally right, which is, okay, in this world where the data is going to be, you know, the information's already free, the data is going to be free and out of silos, where's the value? Well, the value comes in attention. And how do you get attention? It's, you're right, build a community where people feel like they want to go, not where they have to go. And like, I think to your guys' credit, and I saw this in response from, from, uh, from the first podcast is the number of people who contacted me saying, Hey, I heard you on the podcast. I heard you on this. Like, it tells me you guys have actually done that. You've built a Yeah. Woohoo. You guys are great. <laughs> you know, congratulations. You built this community of people who are like, I want to be associated with the Bitcoin podcast. I want to be associated for some reason that no one can figure out with Corey and Marcelo, cause you guys are crazy, but like, maybe that's why they want to be associated with you. I don't know, but like, they want to be associated. I want to, in fact, I was just talking to um, this group, uh, this community of uh, PVX, P-I-V-X. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. Their coins gone from like one cent to over $2. And one of the things that their community, one of their community leaders was telling me is like, look, we just decided that if you show up in our Slack, we are going to be the nicest, friendliest, most thoughtful, most giving, most caring people that you can possibly have. Like, if you show up in our Slack, we're going to help you. I'm, worth, I'm working with this other um, project. It's called the Internet of People. It's an it's outgrowth of a, of a project in Switzerland called Fermat. Same thing. Like, it's like, look, we're putting people over machines. We're putting people first. And we just want to be with other people who share the viewpoint that, you know what, we could go down this like Skynet path of AI, or whatever. We don't want to do that. We want to go down this people first, human first path. And that's who the people come to us. And you're right. I think, you know, there's a community here. So sorry, man, I get excited about this and the coffee's kicking in. So I don't mean to ramble too much, but I get, and it's Friday, you know, so I'm trying to keep the engine engine going through the end of the day, you know? Yeah, this is Cinco de Mayo. Sorry Cinco de Mayo, Kip Bueno. That's exactly right. I should so be I, 
I guess the, the too long didn't read. I, I guess the, the, the idea here is that blockchain can be used to advertise a product in a much more authentic way that doesn't come off as marketing. You know, they, they're, they're seeking direct connections to customers and removing the middlemen. Um, uh, so I guess like blockchain is ultimately, they're anticipating that they're going to build a future of publicness. Is that the right idea? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say is you said, you know, it doesn't come off as marketing. And I think the challenge is that most people's perception of marketing is that it's bullshit, spammy, kind of no irrelevant nonsense. But marketing mm -hmm. is its true sense of capital M marketing is basically understanding people at their deepest need, level of need, emotional, spiritual, spiritual, psychological, physical, whatever, and then creating an experience. It could be physical, obviously, too, creating something that meets that need. You know, I think that's what marketing really is, and that usually gets lost. I feel like you're at somewhat of an impasse or, or a problem in the current state of, of blockchain and the applications that are built on top of it because it's still at this level of difficulty that's too too high of a barrier of entry for the normal everyday average person. They can't understand it. There's no use cases that really make the convenience worth using for people who have no idea what's going on. So. What's going to end up happening, well, the way I see it, is that these third-party services built on top of this wonderful, decentralized, secure, efficient market that we've created are going to make it more convenient, thus becoming middlemen for the, for the everyday person. And they're going to skyrocket because they have the everyday person. So we, we kind of are at the same place, but it's built on a much better foundation. How do you, do you see that happening? And it, do you see it persisting? until everything else can catch up or will they just become the titans once again because they have the everyday person and there's no reason for them to change so it's a good question i mean i think the, the example i was thinking of as you were talking about is coinbase yeah right like coinbase is a great example of like okay we're going to be that intermediary step between the blockchain world and basically a bank or paypal or whatever like you go on and for most people it's like okay i'm buying this thing it's sitting there i don't have the private key so I sort of get it. And I think I think this is sort of the and it's 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 the intermediary step to the next level because you're gonna have like first we have to get people comfortable with the idea of like owning Bitcoin. I mean, I'm sure I don't know about you guys, the first time I bought Bitcoin, I was like, I'm never gonna see this money again and my wife's gonna kill me. Right? Yeah. But then, but then at some point you're like Oh my god, it's actually really good. And then I started to get more, and then people would say, Jeremy, are you worried you have too much Bitcoin? I'm like, I'm worried I don't have enough. Like, that's really my big concern right now. And like, look, what what are we are we were at 1600 yesterday at one point. I don't know if we're where we are vis-a-vis -vis that today, but we're pretty close. It's like it's already happening. And so I think like the first stage, remember, you guys, it's it, it's hard because it feels like it should all happen really quickly. And it's gonna happen quickly. But it's also going to happen slowly, and we have to remember we're we're in the beginning of this massive like re-decentralization of technology, and it's going to take you know 10, 15, 20, 30 years before everybody's like, oh, it's so obvious. Like right now, you know, we have to get people comfortable with the idea of like, oh, I can own an asset that isn't physical, like gold stored in a vault in Switzerland, and it's it's a valuable, but it's actually not controlled by a government because I'm so used to that paradigm. And it's actually, I'm actually better off. Like that's a mind blow. It's a mind blow for us. And we do this all day, every day, you know? So I think you're going to see more and more people get comfortable and then they'll say, wait a second, 
I'm actually not totally secure if I don't have the private key. And now that there are wallets and things and, I, and I'm not worried about losing my key and all that kind of stuff, like there's more and improved ways to keep myself safe so that I'm not going to like have something stupid happen and lose $150,000 because I threw away my, you know, ledger wallet or whatever, like, or 150,000 equivalent Bitcoin or whatever. So I think like it's part of that process. And I think Coinbase is critical to help people onboard. And then eventually you'll have like a better experience that is hopefully decentralized or maybe like both. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm curious, those people that come to you and ask you about, you know, how much Bitcoin you have and all that, if, if, I, I would imagine they're they're new to the scene or or kind of newish. So if I'm new to Bitcoin, what do you think? Should, should I get excited about this price hike and buy Bitcoin, or should I get into Bitcoin to start exploring what it means to be able to send money to someone else without needing any uh, intermediaries? Is there is there like a wrong right or a wrong way to on ramp people? Yeah, I mean, basically, what I tell people is, especially people who like, they'll come to me and I'll be like, all right, here's why I'm super excited, and here's like, I make the case like a lawyer it's like here's why blockchain and decentralized systems to me are inevitable and i make the case of number one it's already happening number two is why is it that i can send an email or a text or an image anywhere in the world in like a second but if i want to transfer assets of value it can take like six months like that makes no sense so and then i said think about the internet of things if we're gonna have five good trillion devices all exchanging value to and from the network like, what are you going to swipe a credit card every time? No, that's ridiculous. So they're like, okay, I get that. How do I get started? And then I say, look, guys, go to Coinbase. Go buy like 100 bucks of Bitcoin. Like, or put however much money in that if you totally lose it, you're not going to feel bad. You know, depending on who you're talking to, it's anywhere from 100 to like $10,000, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, hey, depends who you know, right? And you say, or more. Um, I'm like, look, go put 150 bucks in, $200, whatever. And... If you buy it, it will force you to start asking yourself, what is this? And then you'll start learning and then you'll start going and you'll go from there. And that's what I tell everybody. And, you know, the people who I've done that, who last May, I told them they're really happy right now because they're like, "Woo, I'm making all this like I'm way up. I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. You know, but at least they're like, oh, and now they're getting more and more. And so I think and, and also remember, like, that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like, it's in my interest to tell other people, hey, you should get Bitcoin. And so we all start winning and, and there's value there. So I tell people, look, don't put your, you know, don't mortgage your house and put that into Bitcoin yet. Like I'm not willing to take that on, but put a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever you can afford to lose. But that's a way this thing is happening. Here's the evidence. It's worth spending a hundred dollars for your own education. It's about the education. And then like the rest of us, you'll have that Nirvana moment where you're like, oh my God, this is the future. Like, Welcome to the other side, my friend. Here we are, like blue pill, red pill, whichever one he took in the Matrix, I don't remember. <laughs> I have a, I want to change the conversation just a tiny bit to move into something that I, like, I'm having trouble with um, figuring out how this space is going to move forward based on what's currently going on. And that is the current, I guess, space of ICOs, especially in terms of like the, the Ethereum community. We have people... Like, it seems as though we've created this new way of uh, almost creating a decentralized Kickstarter for people to raise funds from whoever they want. Um, and because of the hype associated with the projects, they earn ridiculous amounts of money in a very short period of time. And based on like my analysis, they usually come from 
a very small amount of investors, which artificially inflates the uh, maybe ability of these platforms to produce what they said they're going to produce because more often than not, there's nothing to show for all the money they've recently gained. And there's no recourse for them taking the money and walking away. And we're creating a community around this. And it, is, it, is, it a, is it a product of too much marketing and not enough product? Or is it just hype and people with a lot of money trying to take advantage of a market so they can make money themselves? So let me get this straight. You're saying that you're skeptical that Gnosis is worth $330 million? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> with no, like, I mean, what? I mean I've, talk, I've talked to, to them quite a bit. Uh, and I, I, I trust that they're convinced about the project they're working on and what they're working on is important and could potentially be huge. Right. I am also convinced that the team is, it has a potential for, for creating the thing they set out to create. I'm not convinced they're worth that much already based on what they currently have. And we have this FOMO behavior right. going on when you can make, you know, what is it? $12.5 million in 15 minutes. Right. Like what's to keep me from creating a coin, creating a pretty website around that coin, promising a lot of cool stuff that has all the buzzwords in it, making a lot of money and then walking away. Absolutely nothing. And I think you're right. I mean, you know, I saw that and I'm like, that's why I got the 300 million because I was, it was like they only sold 5% of their coins. Was yeah. right there. And people don't so, get that, but they still invested yeah. in it. No, no, I know. I, I think there's nothing to prevent you. And I think, again, this is like, to me, this feels like this is the same, you know, kind of, you know, it's like, I was a history major. Go back to like Dutch tulips and all these bubbles, South Seas, all these things. Like there's this history of like, there's excitement and there's going to be this huge, you know, run up. And that's what's happening. I think with a lot of these ICOs, like you're going to have that. It doesn't mean that fundamentally the, the method is wrong. It's just there's this exuberance, there's the FOMO, there's the speculative value because the smart money, and I want to be the smart money, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, but you know, the smart money realizes that the real plays in this are the infrastructure plays. It's it's the, the, the ones who has the staying power. So like, you know, most of the investments are going to be like, what, you know, like these silly startups from, you know, 1997 that was like, you know, coffeepots.com worth $50 million or whatever the silly .com things were. Mm -hmm. Most of them blew up. A few made it. Look at it. I just saw that Yik Yak closed down. At one point, they were valued at $400 million. And now they're shut down and they basically sold their engineering staff for like a million dollars. Like, so you have this. But part of the, the innovative process is a lot of people throwing a lot of money, most of them losing it, some of them winning huge. And those that, that creates like you know, the, the, the environment in which, through which the, the real game changers come. So I think, at, you know, if you're trying to say, you know, which of these is going to win and are they overvalued? The answer is, I don't know which one of them win and most of them are overvalued. But that's part of sort of the, the birthing process that we always we seem to go through. Mm -hmm. the, the ICO model is ingenious because now we have a way to fundamentally 
sort, you know, pay for and fund open source software, which we could never really answer before. We needed Microsoft, we needed Oracle, and Linux is the one exception, and they, they're always passing the hat, right, to keep the Linux foundation. But now you can fund open source software. That's pretty cool. That's a game changer in and of itself. So now if we have these ICOs, like, okay, and, and that stuff will evolve. So again, I'm looking at this from a 20-year time frame, and like, okay, so we're going to have a lot of, you know, collateral damage and wreckage along the way, but the, the trajectory and the transformative elements of the economy and the technology, to me, like, that's here to stay, even if most of these companies are, they're going to be pure scams, or they're just not going to deliver. And let's even give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not pure scams, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to deliver because they're like, oh, we have all this money, but we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Project management's hard, turns out. Yeah, it's, oh, it's a lot harder than building a website. It's, I, I get that. So you're right. It, it's tough, but that's where I think you have to take that seasoned approach. It's like, okay, have the discipline, you know, take almost like a Warren Buffett approach. Like think that 15, 20 years down the road, like what is it going to look like? What are the plays? And that's why I like some of these like, like the internet of people thing that I'm talking about, like a PIVX thing or like a Tezos thing is interesting to me. Like some of these fundamental infrastructure as opposed to specific apps. Like, again, I have no idea, but that's kind of why I'm sort of interested in some of these, you know, bigger, broader potential applications. I think that's what Ethereum is, like why they're up to like 99 or whatever. I would agree. I mean, who knows why? I have no idea why this stuff is happening. Is it, is it harder to get funding for... Uh open source software than it is for, I guess, normal stuff? I think traditionally it has been because, you know, no one, you know, no one really figured, cracked the code <laughs> on how to actually make money with open source software, like BitTorrent, right? BitTorrent as a software was great. BitTorrent as a business was terrible. Like there was no way to actually fund it. So they tried to do an enterprise model or whatever. They never really made a lot of money off of that, you know? Linux really didn't make money. I mean, Red Hat's the one company that everyone points to, but you can't be like, oh, we're going to be like Red Hat. That's like saying, oh, we're going to be like Apple. We're going to be like Microsoft. Like, good luck with that game plan. Like, you know, so how do you fund an open source, a truly open source game-changing movement? Keep it funded. Um, but now we have a way. It's like, okay, we have these tokens, and, you know, as the value of the tokens increase and more people, and then, okay, that's how you fund it. That's what the Ethereum Foundation, all these foundations are about. So that was... That was kind of the idea of like what the token model is supposed to be is that like, and it, and it right. comes back to us talking about attention being the, the resource, right? If you build a platform, you build an application and then have a, 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 a pool of tokens associated with using that application or platform, if you will, the more people that jump into it means the more valuable the token on that platform is worth. Think about Bitcoin, think about Ethereum, think about anything that we're, we've talked in the past. Right. Now, if you set aside a portion of those tokens or you invest in your own platform and say, I think people are going to use this as your community grows and the people that use it and the tension associated with those people get more and more into what you're doing, then you've successfully funded your own, your own right. project that you've done. And until blockchain, that hasn't been a thing you could do. Right. So you now it at scale. And now the beauty of it is like, you know, they're 21 million Bitcoin or whatever. The supply is either finite or predictably inflationary. And so, you know, a first year high school economics student can tell you what happens when you have finite supply and increasing demand. Like it's, it's great. And I, so I think it's really fascinating. So now you can fund, if you had a hundred tokens that were worth a hundred dollars and now you have a hundred tokens that are worth $500, 
you still have the same number of tokens, but you have five times the relative purchasing power in other economies or whatever. That's really, really powerful. And it's just fascinating to me. It's really hard to see how the, all this stuff is going. It's, 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 it is, it's fascinating. That's the only way really to put it is that, and it's, it's, I'm trying to have a hard time trying to figure out where my attention should go based on all of the cool stuff that's happening and whether or not the people who are saying they can do these things can't do it. Like I almost, my portfolio is just going to get ridiculously big because I want to be a part of all these projects. Right. And you probably should be. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I put like what three ether or something into Gnosis. So if, if I lose it all, okay, not the end of the world. And if it, if it returns like a thousand percent, I of course would be like, Oh, I should have put more in, but whatever. But like, there's a great book I read a couple years ago. It's called Little Bets. And the basic idea was exactly that. Like, don't try to put all your chips on, you know, red 27. Cover the board. Because at this stage, we have to remember something. We're, we're so early. So where I try to spend my time is like, what are the trends? What are the, the sort of new, the business model disruptions? that are going to happen as a result of this new technology? What are the implications for society? And then work future back. You guys are smart enough to say, hey, in a world of fully decentralized systems, what things will we need? What will we won't need? And then work backwards. And then you can start saying, okay, who's building in that direction? Do we really need 15 decentralized casinos? Probably not. Maybe, I don't know. but. Like, what are the things? And like 20 years ago, we couldn't have seen Seamless and Uber and Spotify. But the idea that we would now, we would free music and free some of these things from their, their pre-existing systems. That's what the, the real visionaries um, were looking at, you know? I don't know, man. It's, it's like you said, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, Corey, if you don't mind, I got another marketing question. I've had it. <laughs> I hope I know we're jumping back and forth from like technical to marketing, but um, I guess I had a question on my mind. I wanted to ask you, you know, because there's there's headlines of like Brave Software browser where we get paid, where mm -hmm. we shouldn't, where advertisers shouldn't get paid. We should get paid because we watch it. Right. And you take YouTube as kind of the most obvious example. You know, they say there's three, four hundred hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. So right. I mean, to watch every minute of every video uploaded in a week, it would require like a hundred thousand people working around the clock full time. Right. And that exact same like logistical problem applies to ads served by double click, um, as well as the massive amount of content uploaded to Facebook's various properties, whatever they may be. So right. when both companies state that they're working on using machine learning to police the content, I don't think it's an excuse. I think it's the only viable approach. And that's what's indisputable, though, is the, the logistics of policing the content. I think it's mind-boggling. So instead of, like, yours and Steemit, I mean, if Google and Facebook, if they have all the responsibility, then shouldn't they also be getting all of the money instead of us? Uh, what, what are your views? Do you think that we should be getting paid or, or them? I, I'm always conflicted. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great question. I think there are a couple things um... – if, if I understand where you're coming from, there are a couple of things in there. There's one is like, should we get paid for our attention or whatever? And, and I think it sort of begs the question of, well, how do we discover the right content? And, and what's the way if you're an advertiser or whatever, or you're, you're a marketer to 
get people's attention, I think there's part one. And then the second part, I think, is if I'm understanding you correctly, like, okay, if this content's going out there, like, is is someone responsible for ensuring that the content is meets a certain standard? And which I guess I'm, you know, opens up an entirely can of words, like whose standard, what do we decide? You know, like, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you could have a scenario where, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess on the, the content issue, cause it's, it's with Google and Facebook right now, because they're centralized, like they have to be worried about, um, you know, public perception PR and the fact that the local government or the federal government can come in, like they can walk into their office in Menlo park or whatever, and be like, we're shutting you down and like, you're done. So like they have to sort of say, Oh, here's how we're going to police content. But in a decentralized world, like whose job is that? It, it becomes maybe come back to Corey's point around it's the community. Well, okay. How does the community? Well, basically then it's the reputation of the person uploading it. If you're a trusted person, then anything that Marcelo uploads, because he has all these people vouching for him, that gets raised. Whereas some other person who doesn't have identity attributes associated with his profile that he's in fact trusted. Like, you know, after this podcast, I should have like a cryptographic signature from the two of you guys saying, Jeremy knows what he's talking about. He was on our podcast. And that that I can then carry with me, be like, hey, next podcast. Not that there's any other podcast on the planet that even matters nearly as much as yours guys, of course. Nailed it. Yeah, exactly. So like the second and third ranked podcasts who are so far behind you in the rankings, it's not even funny. But if I wanted to go to them, like, hey, I've been a guest. Well, they shouldn't have to call you, email you, whatever. Like, hey, is Jeremy worth like, no, here's the cryptographic signature, which then basically elevates me. So the same thing then is if I publish a piece of content that con or whatever, that content basically is signed with my signature. But that signature carries the weight of all the signatures that have been assigned to it. So I think, you know, in some way, and if all of a sudden, Marcelo, I discover that you're a raving, you know, anti-Semitic, homophobe, misogynist, which you might be. But nailed like, it. Not, no. <laughs> I, I know, I nailed it. Exactly. God. Yeah, Marcelo revealed. That's yeah. the topic of this. Then I'd be like, you know what? I am withdrawing my cryptographic approval of him and you start plummeting and then the content you get like it doesn't surface so i think you maybe have a way to like decentralize policing of community content based on and if i if i have signed it i'm basically putting my public reputation at stake by saying here's a guy i trust and if it's like he's actually a racist misogynistic homophobe uh anti-semite i threw in racist just to kind of drive it home yeah. Um, oh, and then I actually get hurt by association. So I'm sorry, man. I can't be associated with you because it's just the, the hate that you spew. I'm really sorry. Right. Yeah. Aside from my obvious racism, like they can't <laughs> just, they can't just say, look, we're a tech company. We have nothing to do with the content that is appearing on our digital pages. You know, as far as placing advertisements was concerned, they have to be held to the same standards as, uh, uh traditional media organizations. So I guess there are only nowadays, there's only two places to buy ads. So it's not as if agencies are helping, you know, advertisers purchase secrets across multiple outlets as they did in the past. So, you yeah. know, things are changing. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. That's good perspective. It's actually, along those lines, there's a great blogger, this guy. He's, I think he's British, but he lives in Taiwan. His name is Ben Thompson. He writes this great blog called Stratechery. He wrote an amazing post recently about 
how Google and Facebook are basically the only two places to go and why they're sort of conflicted in their models of like how they have to deal with the world because they have this PR responsibility. But more importantly, like agencies really offer no value whatsoever uh, as it relates to these guys. So he, he does a much better job than I ever could in terms of explaining it. But I think it's really fascinating in terms of like how it's sort of the beginning of the end for the agencies in their traditional role and how um, the threat it actually poses to us that all this stuff, because right now, Google and Facebook are optimizing their algorithms for like, hey, engagement and attention to Corey's point. But what if they decide like we want to optimize our algorithms so that you vote for or against Proposition 327 or whatever it is, they could do that. And that makes it I think there's a, a larger risk thing, which also tells me that uh, at some point, people, hopefully people are like, you know, I'm not so comfortable with everything coming through these two places that are privately controlled you know, corporations, but different story. Yeah, that's what they tell me. Um, you know, I, you know, advertising agencies. That's how I pay my mortgage. You know, I, I working with agencies, and they always tell us, you know, big brands at the top, agencies in the middle, and then the big vast ocean is Google and Facebook. So right. it it kind of puts the fear in your in your heart a little bit. I hear you. I hear you. I don't. I don't. I have nothing to add here. I mean, <laughs> with I don't know anything about marketing. I mean, I guess I guess right. tra like traditional marketing. I'm not. It, it, I understand that it's this. Google and Facebook do have, are so 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 large that they're almost impossible to stop because they're so large. They have all of the data to then feed into AI to do specific marketing, which then feeds back kind of the the attention of the people coming back at them because they're getting what they want. And at the end of the day, if you can't if you can't uh, curate material for the people on your platform well enough that no one's going to keep coming back. And because they have all the data, they can curate the material properly. And I, like, I wouldn't say that the platforms that are currently being built have failed, like yours, Steam, and, and, and Akasha, things like that, simply because they're too small and it's too early. Right. Like, their ideas are attempting to disrupt something that's so big that they pale in comparison, so you really can't vet them against the, 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 the titans that exist right now. I'm a futurist, Corey. I can I can predict the future. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I, I think Corey again. This to me is like, hey, look, it could be different this time. But you know, imagine I was saying to someone yesterday, like, imagine thirty or forty forty years ago, saying to someone, you know, Kodak is not going to exist anymore, or IBM's basically irrelevant, or GM's not going to exist. I mean, they have they not been saved, right? So like, there are a lot of companies, I mean, I saw a stat and it's something like 50% of the companies that were on the S&P 500 in the year 2000 don't exist anymore. They just don't exist. And so that's the pace of innovation. Now, I understand that like maybe Facebook and Google because of the massive data, like the challenges are higher and, and whatever, but like the idea that it's it's not it, it, in the moment it seems like they're insurmountable but you know as more people start saying well there's actually value for me over here there's there's utility there's like maybe a greater sense of security privacy or like i'm tired of fake news you know what i'm only going to read stuff that Corey vouches for with his cryptographic signature and i know that it's not being manipulated by a man in the middle attack which is basically facebook's algorithm or google's algorithm or whatever it is like there's something comforting about that. And so I'll go there and I'll actually compensate Corey by giving him 
one steam thing or whatever like i the, the three currencies in steam still confuse me but whatever <laughs> I, mean, I get the rough concept but i'm like why are there so many but you know maybe there's something there you know and maybe there's I, again I, this is so like these things are like in the womb and you're comparing or and it's natural like oh how is this you know thing in the womb going to compare with lebron james and you're like dude <laughs> it just doesn't compare like it's a different story you got to give this thing time. And also at a certain point, LeBron's got to retire, although it seems like he just doesn't slow down, but that's a different topic. All right. I think that's a, that's a, we can start wrapping up from here. Actually, we're, we're about 40 minutes in. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would say that Corey, did you, if you asked them the, uh, the describe Bitcoin in 10 words or less, we could switch it up. Um, Jeremy, you mentioned that you're like 70 pages into a book. I, I would love to, have the notion that I'm reading the same thing as you're reading so I can feel a little smarter and I'm sure our audience would appreciate it. If you could just like, you know, maybe recommend one or two pieces of literature, uh, that would be super beneficial for me and I'm sure some people listening. You're very kind. Well, I'll tell you the three books that I've committed to finishing this quarter. Well, I say the next three months. And then I'll tell you, um, someone asked me yesterday, uh, uh, sort of my, my top marketing books that I recommend. So, the three books that I'm trying to finish right now are one, The Attention Merchants, which I just gave a shout out to. Uh, number two, I'm embarrassed to say I've never read it, but I'm reading it now, is Snow Crash. Um, and number three, to try to keep it real, I'm reading uh, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, trying to keep it keep it balanced, whatever. So those are my th on my night table right now. But if you really care about marketing, and everybody should, um, there are a lot of great books out there. In fact, I have a, uh, and if you guys want to put in the show notes or whatever, I have a, what I call my Never Stop Marketing recommended reading list, which has like 10 or 11 of my classics. Um, but the one that I tell people, like if you just really want to fundamentally understand marketing at its deepest level, there's a book called Different. It's by a Harvard Business School professor. Um, and it's atypical in the sense that it's actually really accessible and really good for a business school professor. Her name's Young Me Moon. Um, and it's just basically a mind blow because the essence of marketing is really how do you create differentiation in the minds of your customers, your audience. And customers, anyone who hires you, whether it's with money or with time or attention, to do a job. So right now, who's ever listening to this podcast, if, if there's more than anybody, listen, one person right now, that'd be amazing. But let's say they're still listening. They're hiring you guys every week to do a job for them. You should ask yourselves and ask them, what job are you guys hiring them for? Are you hiring us to be entertaining? Are you hiring us to be informative, to be educational, to stimulate your brain, to relax you after a long day, to get you fired up for the day? What job do you hire the Bitcoin podcast for? And once you understand that, you're like, okay, great. How do we differentiate ourselves from all of the other things, not just the podcast, from all the other things out there that could be hired for the same task. Like if it's fire me up, well, I can either listen to Bitcoin podcast, these other three podcasts, or I can have a shot of espresso, or I can go do an exercise or whatever it is. So then you guys start to understand who's our audience, what are they hiring for, and then how do we differentiate ourselves so that of all the possible choices on the supermarket shelves of things we could be doing to achieve the objective that we're hiring you for, we're the one that stands out the most. We're the one that's different the most because in a sea of sameness, it's like, ah, you know, if you have all white 
bottles on the wall and there's one pink one, you're like, oh, what's the deal with the pink one? Bang, that's differentiation. So how you guys go about doing it. So she did an amazing job in that book of explaining differentiation at its core and everything from there. So, um, you know, and then of course the Never Stop Marketing blog. You should read that every single day. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down. It'll be in the show notes for sure. There you go. There you go. All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming on again, Jeremy. We're, we're always happy to have you because the conversations are, are just fun to listen to. I think our audience will get a lot out of it. See you again in a month. Every a month. <laughs> Let's make it a standing thing. You guys are fun. Thank you guys. All right. You really push to think hard, and I really appreciate that. And that was the interview with Jeremy Epstein, blockchain consultant, marketing consultant, always be marketing. That's a fact of life, especially if you're like us and you create content and you create things and you're trying to magnify your presence, not magnify, but make your presence on the internet more magnetic. You need to be marketing. And I love having marketers on the show. Because Bitcoin needs better marketing individuals in the community as a whole, man. I feel like you're right, Cello, where this isn't an experiment anymore. It's been around for almost a decade. Next year will be a decade. Yep. Why do so many people not give a shit? Right? That's just bad. That's bad marketing, right? There's more people on the planet that care more about Coca-Cola than care about Bitcoin. I guarantee it. And Coca-Cola is probably the most delicious soda on the planet. No, I'm kidding. It's very good. But, I mean, it's just soda. It's not hard to make. Like, kids in elementary school learn how to make soda. Yeah. But, I mean, so, sometimes I look at uh, uh, how goes it, Ken Bozak. Sometimes I look at his Facebook, and I'm like, man, if I wasn't in the, if I wasn't in the Bitcoin and I saw his posts – would it come off as spammy? You know, like, hey, give me 10 bucks and I'll turn it into 100. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's hard to market. I don't Bitcoin. know if that's what he's I think he's saying if you get $100 of Bitcoin, you get $10. Because well, he's, that's it, Coinbase's thing. He's basically just promising that, you know, take this amount of money, think about Bitcoin, and you'll have more money by the end of the day. But well, I don't. Yeah. I don't think anyone's mastered how to market Bitcoin. You know what I mean? He's well, he's he's done a great job engaging people and getting people on the hook. But I'm not sure we've mastered how to market. I'm not sure we've mastered how to on ramp people. I think yeah. mastered marketing is kind of like long standing reliability, right? Like when you go get a laptop, you feel a little bit more comfy when you see that AMD sticker on it or you see that Intel sticker on it. Right, you're like, oh, I know what's inside of there. That's true. Or when you go to the vending machine, if you're one of those people, you feel a little bit more comfy when you see that Pepsi circle on there, right? Yeah. Or if you're a regular human, you feel more comfy when you see the Coca-Cola uh, font googled across the bottle. You know, so it. I think when something is marketed well, it kind of speaks for itself as a product too. And unfortunately, Bitcoin isn't really a product. Bitcoin is this currency thing, this new currency. And the only way for, I think, a currency to go viral, for lack of a better term than something a millennial would say, is it has to be around for a long time. Well, 10 years next year, man. Yeah, but 10 years is long to us because we're only going to live 70. 
right? But how many people were dealing with paper currency, like, for a very long time before it it spread out of China as something that was viable? Like, how long? I would love to know how long China was using paper currency before they were visited by foreigners and they were and foreigners were like, wait, what's this? You don't use like gold? You don't use flowers? You use just paper? And they're like, yeah, bro, we've been using paper for a long time. It just makes sense because they're like everything's digital now. Why can't money be digital? Makes sense. I mean, money's already digital, but they've let enough of the masses go uneducated to that point to where now we're in this flux where people just don't know and don't care. Like there's kids growing up right now that just know this debit card equals money somehow. I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. There's I get numbers in my bank account and I check the numbers and when the numbers go up, I'm happy. And when they go down, I'm sad. They don't really think about like, at least when we were kids, there was a little bit of that. Like, um, this money represents something and you put a check in the bank. Like we at least had the check part, you know, like you take your check and you go cash it. And then you take that cash and then you go to the bank. Like we had a little bit of that taste of that, but Kids nowadays, it's just like, it's even on the Monopoly board games. Like, here's your debit card. That's your money. Yeah, can you imagine, like, when we were mowing lawns as a kid, when it was time to get paid, we just hand them, a, like, a treasure wallet or something? Yeah, like a little square space chip reader. <laughs> yeah. And kids are doing that nowadays. And yeah. so money's already digital, right? So if money's already digital and wealth is digital and it's becoming this innate sense that people just understand, then a actual viable digital cash is bound to have value for a long-standing time because people are going to figure out, oh, that's digital too. Oh, I can manage that kind of similar to the way I manage my debit card funds. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it's just cash, so I can kind of do whatever I want with it, except for if I do bad stuff, then they're going to track me down, good old-fashioned police work style. So, you know, I think that, I think now the thing in Bitcoin's corner is going to be, how long is it around? Because I've said this on the show and I'll say it again. Today, there's a bunch of babies born that by the time they're start, they're old enough to make decisions about where they put their wealth and how they use their money, Bitcoin will have been a thing. They're born into a Bitcoin world. It'll just it'll just be second nature to them at that point. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, well, there's this cat, there's this like my country's fiat money, and then there's Bitcoin, there's this other kind of money. They both get me the things that I want. Um, here's the history of Bitcoin curated by podcasts like our own. So let me make a decision about where I want to hold my cash. So, so it's going to be a much different world when these babies are all grown up. So Yeah, maybe someone will listen to us like 50 years in the future. And quote the Street Fighter jokes that we made. <laughs> and like... <laughs> Every once in a while, we say something that's a glimmer of awesome, but for the most part, it's just like Street Fighter jokes. Yeah, and, pretty much. And talking about Athena Bitcoin. Oh, we haven't done any ads at all. Ooh, boy. <laughs> yeah, we should we... do that right now. Hey, let's make let's act like we like planned it. Hold up. Hey, Cello. Yeah. I was like wanting to go to a Bitcoin ATM. And I couldn't find any in like the North Texas area. Would you happen to know of any places or any people that actually kind of run Bitcoin ATMs? 
Are you talking about Athena Bitcoin, which just happens to be the most trusted name in Bitcoin ATMs? Yeah, people just like that. Tell me more. Well, where are you located? Are you located in Houston, Fort Worth, or Dallas? I happen to frequent all of those cities and only those cities. Oh, well, there's seven other U.S. cities and probably a couple more. Um, so if you frequent all those cities, then you're going to be in luck. Uh, but if you're not, then you can download the Athena Bitcoin wallet on the app store or google play so everyone is included in the greatness does that make sense i think it does okay. it's cool that their name is athena right because isn't athena like the goddess of monster cheese yeah, something like, something it like that it makes total sense yeah um for more information <laughs> oh and we're getting new swag from athena bitcoin so when we go to the conferences we're going to be wearing the shirts and hats so uh come up to us and say hi and uh, we will tell you for more information, visit AthenaBitcoin.com because they're always adding new locations. And the other half of that is we're brought to you by Athena's Bitcoin portfolio company, Bitquick.co, to secure a quick and easy peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace where you can get Bitcoin for cash in as little as three hours. Bitquick has been serving Bitcoiners since 2013, so they're not an experiment either. They've been around for a while. Where there's a bank, there's Bitquick. Yeah. That sounded like Ophelia. It's been a long time. Oh, he's yelling at his babies on mute again. <laughs> Do you um, hold on a second? Okay. I don't need to hold on. I'm just going to let you guys know. All that right, was so I... stern looking. When you're on mute and you're talking to your family, you look so like stern. You're the captain of that ship. Yeah, when you have a family and everyone is under the age of six, you're just yelling. <laughs> um well yeah guys go to those places go to Athena Bitcoin get some Bitcoin out of the ATM machine um and then Bitquick yeah right. also We're there's also- one other thing that we do right there's some other people that we'd like to let everyone know about yeah I want to tell you guys about Equibit Development Corporation they're building several applications that are decentralized in the securities industry the securities industry is just like the banking industry. They're filled with centralized intermediaries that clear and settle transactions. They handle shareholder communications and other labor-intensive work. I don't know if this sounds boring, but it's not because these expensive tasks cannot be replaced with peer-to-peer technologies. Just like what me and Dee were talking about, this is the future, man. It brings the cost of performing this work down dramatically. So issuing companies, dealers, investors, they're all going to benefit significantly from cutting away this part of their overhead. So for their main initiative, we want you to go to Equibit.org. That's E-Q-U-I-B-I-T dot O-R-G. Sign up for that newsletter. And shout out to Nathan Wozniak. Yep. Doing it big. Look, basically, it's, it's they're one of the companies that's trying to disintermediate the middlemen in between, in the securities agents, in securities industry specifically. So go check them out. Um, you know, Corey actually went to their, like, I think their opening, I don't want to call it an opening meeting because it's very generic and lame, but I think it was their initial coin offering, right? He yeah, went to their, like, ICO party for that. And, you know, it moved Mr. Dr. Petty enough to get some Equibits. So they know what they're doing. Uh, go check them out. Um, so, yeah, let's keep it moving here. Uh. Dude. Litecoin, it's kablam, out of the blue. 
almost thirty dollars a Litecoin. Yeah, that's bananas, man. We need to get Segwit in the Bitcoin world, and then Ethereum's breaking a hundred dollars now, man. That's wow. It's a good time to be an investor, that's for sure. Definitely a good time to be in crypto, man. I'm not mad at my portfolio right now. Let me tell you, like I I look at it and I'm just like, yes, crypto. Yes. My portfolio just consists of what the sponsors give me, and I'm happy with that. So if you're doing more than me, then you should be double happy. I'm I'm a happy guy. I hope even if everything comes crashing down through a massive nuclear war or the robots finally learn how to make us turn into batteries so we can power their um machine lifeblood or uh, we get hit with a meteor. I can say that one day I was really freaking amped up about a digital currency. And so if the Matrix happens and or Michael Bay's Armageddon, if yeah. those two movies happen. Either one of those two things happen. I could still say die a happy man that I was way, 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 way into Bitcoin and had a great time learning all this new technology with these really smart people. So... Well, this is cool. Like, I'm about to say some words, and then 30 seconds from now, I'm going to be a little bit richer. So I'm going to tell you guys about EscortMyBits.com. See what I did there? I do see what you did there. Uh, I like these guys a lot, man. I really do, because it only takes three steps. And if you're not familiar with escrow, this is all you got to do. Is all you got to do is re- register. Once you register, you're going to deposit some of your Bitcoin, and then the seller ships the item. The buyer will check the goods, make sure everything's intact, and then they're going to release your funds. And they also offer Bitcoin escrow with a locked exchange rate. So no matter where you are in the world, you can use this great little service. They charge a small flat escrow fee of 1% in all escrow transactions, and they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party. So I don't know. In my book, they've thought of everything. So what me and D, what we want is there to no longer be any excuses on why not to use escrow my bits. So to start that escrow process Go to their website. Make sure you sign up for their newsletter so you can stay up to date where you can escrow your shit with escrowmybits.com. That was a good one. That felt good. I like that. That might have been the best one yet. Yep. Uh, in terms of roundtable, I don't I don't have anything else to say, man. We got nothing else to say, really. The interview spoke for itself. Um, if you are into marketing, you should definitely go follow Mr. Jerry Epstein. Um, if you're listening to us right now, Maybe join our Slack and tell us why. Because he said something really monumental at the end of that interview. You guys are hiring us once a week, maybe multiple times a week, to listen to us talk about random things. Do you like us? Because sometimes we talk about um, how you can never get the inside of a Hot Pocket warm, like on the outsides of Hot Pocket. Or do you like us because sometimes we drop knowledge bombs about crypto? Or do you like us because you also are just in love with Zoe Saldana and wish that she were not married and you were in her league and you relate to us on that level. Uh, you know, well, if, or, I feel like if she came to you, you would, she, and she was willing to cheat on her husband with you, you would, you would allow it. I wouldn't allow it. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it just wouldn't feel pure. It wouldn't feel pure if she's like, hey, I'm over that dude. I want to get with you. I've heard all 120-some episodes of your show, 
And you know what? I'm just really passionate about you. And I don't really like my family that much. Let's do this. Then I would be like, ah, oh, not even pure anymore, Zoe. You just ruined it. <laughs> you just ruined it. I can respect that. So, anyways, yeah, man, like, hop in the Slack. Let us know what we do to keep the good vibes flowing. And, and we're going to keep them going. Right? Everyone wish Dr. Petty a happy birthday. Um, I'm kidding. It's not his birthday at all. But I wonder how many people My are going to do it. Oh, yeah. Your birthday's like in two days, right? Three days. You're going to be uh, old, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm old. I'm start calling you old, man. Petty's going to be at Coin Census, though, in New York. So if you're in New York, yeah. what's up? If you're in New York, tell Corey happy birthday. Please do it. And just so he's confused as hell, if you see him, say, hey, man, happy birthday, Corey. He'll be like, what the hell? Like, why? Because he will have had to listen to this episode to know he's that I'm listening. telling everyone to say him happy birthday. But he's Cinco de Drinko right now, so he has no clue. So if just a whole bunch of people roll up on him, and they're like, hey, happy birthday, man. He's going to go, why is everyone telling me happy birthday? This is so strange. And he's, he doesn't listen to his own episodes, so. No. After we record them, we just let it loose into the wild. <laughs> uh, anyways, it's always been fun, guys. You can catch us on Twitter at the BTC Podcast. Uh, we've got some episodes of Block Channel coming out. We've got a very special episode of On Rampant with D coming up, where I talk with my blood brother, um, one Nathaniel Ferguson, um, jazz musician aficionado. Uh, we have what else are we doing, man? We do lots of stuff. Oh, okay. Can he can he perform your theme song on his I'm, saxophone? Why you gotta ruin the surprise for everybody? Was that it for real? It was going to be yes. Oh well, you it's can catch awesome. me. I'll ruin a surprise. You can catch me on Ken Bozak's show next week. Oh yeah, Spoiler Bitcoin alert. talk talks about Bitcoin and Bitcoin accessories. Yep. Um, we got a blog, the Bitcoin podcast blog on Medium. Uh, if you Google Bitcoin podcasts, we're at the top. We're at the very top. And I looked on several people's computers. So that was a pretty big deal for us. We drank to that. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed your Cinco de Drinko. May the 4th also be with you. I know it's um, belated, but whatever. Um, second host D, first host Cello, signing off. Uh, you never say play the outro. Do you want to say it? Yeah. Play the outro.